Amen. I invite you to open your Bibles to the book of Hebrews, chapter 6. While you're finding Hebrews, chapter 6, let me thank Dexter and Dexter again. Awesome job, guys. Thank you. I've been keeping up with Dexter a little bit on Facebook, but today's the first time I've seen him since last year. And uh, he is fit. The guy's lost weight. He's ready to run a marathon. I said, man, how'd you do it? He said, well, I've been doing insanity. Anybody here do insanity? I told him I do that T45. And he said, it's T25. I said, not if you play it in slow motion. <laughs> so obviously it's not working for me, Dexter. I'm going to need some help, man. Preaching through the book of Hebrews this summer, we're, we've come to chapter 6. So let me give you a little context, okay? I know some of you haven't been here week after week, but I know you're listening to it online, right? Just kidding. You can if you want to. It's on our website. It's also on iTunes at Garden City Chapel if you want to catch up or kind of see where we're heading in the book of Hebrews. But the writer of Hebrews is writing specifically to a church in or around Rome. The church is made up of Jewish believers. These are typically, or, or most of them, are uh, raised in the Jewish faith. They've come to faith in Jesus Christ. But part of the church are people who haven't yet come to faith in Christ. They've left Judaism behind, but they haven't totally come to faith in Jesus Christ. They're still inquiring. They're still listening. They're tasting. They're this close. And so he issues a warning in the first part of Hebrews chapter 6. And he said, for those of you that are still looking back, kind of like the children of Israel did in the wilderness, you're heading to the promised land, but it's taken longer than you thought. And you're thinking, we ought to just go back to Egypt. In fact, they even said, you know, that was the land flowing with milk and honey. No, it wasn't. They were slaves in Egypt. They were beaten in Egypt. They were captives. God spared them from that. Got them out of the land of Egypt. Lead them to a land of promise. They'd have gotten there a lot quicker if they weren't so stubborn and disobedient. And yet, they kept looking backwards. And he said, when you get to that point, when you've tasted the goodness of God, you've, you've heard His word proclaimed, you've been made a partaker, you've seen the Holy Spirit at work. And especially for a Jew to walk away from that, what you're basically saying is, when Jesus died on the cross, on the cross He deserved it. And it says you've put him to open shame and it's impossible to renew you back to repentance. So then we come to chapter 6, verse 9. The passage we're looking at today. And he begins by speaking to the beloved, to the believers. Let me read just the first few verses of Hebrews chapter 6, verse 9. But, beloved, we're convinced of better things concerning you and things that accompany salvation, though we are speaking in this way. For God is not unjust to, so to forget your work and the love which you have shown toward His name in having ministered and in still ministering to the saints. And we desire that each one of you show the same diligence so as to realize the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you'll not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises of God. If you're one of those that's hearing this letter read in the church and you're hearing him talk about, hey, not being able to be renewed to repentance, you're probably wondering, is he talking to me? And so he uses a very specific word. In fact, he only uses this word one time in the whole book of Hebrews. It's the word beloved. That word is used 59 other times in the New Testament, and it always applies to believers. So I believe he shifted his focus temporarily because he's going to get back to the other group here in a minute. But temporarily said, beloved. We're convinced of better things for you. Literally, God has remembered your ministry. God knows what you're up to. God knows your faith. He knows the demonstration of your faith. 
he's remembered your ministry. He says, we're convinced. The word convinced there is a strong word. It's a word meaning not a snap decision, but the abiding result of consideration. In other words, the writer is saying, I know you, church. I know there's better things about you. I know there's things that accompany salvation. What's he talking about? He's saying it's obvious by your life that I can see that God saved you. It's obvious by what I see in your practice that you're a child of God. And then he mentions some of the things that they've been doing. God's not unjust to forget. He's not forgetful. He's not blind. He's seen it. And your work has been motivated by love. And you've shown it toward his name. Now, be careful here. There's times we read this and we see the work word and we think, okay, I got to do that. So that I can become a Christian. It's not what he's saying at all. He's saying you're doing this because you are a Christian. It's evidence. It's things that accompany salvation. Let me stop for a minute. Just how do we apply that to our life? Listen, if you're a child of God, the way you come to faith in Christ is empty to Jesus. You don't bring anything in your hand. You don't say, is this good enough? Because none of it was. The Bible says we're all sinners. We've all fallen short of the glory of God. So we don't earn salvation. It's a gift. It's grace. But God's got a plan for our life. And so there will be accompanying work. There will be things, evidences in your life that you'll begin to see throughout your life. Fruit of the Spirit. And he's saying we've seen these things that accompany salvation. Remember what Jesus said? Jesus speaking to the crowd, he said... There's coming a day when you're going to reconcile with the king. And the king's going to say, hey, you're blessed. Thank you. You you receive a reward because when I was hungry, you fed me. When I was thirsty, you gave me something to drink. When I was a stranger, you invited me in. When I was naked, you gave me something to eat. When I was in prison, you came and visited me. Remember what the crowd says? They said, Jesus, when did we ever see that? We never saw you hungry and gave you something to eat or thirsty and gave you something to drink or so forth. And Jesus said, when you did it to the least of these, you've done it unto me. So God sees that. But folks, don't get the cart before the horse. We don't do the good works so that God loves us. We do the good works because God loves us. And so he says, God has not forgotten this ministry. God has seen that. But then he comes back and he basically now is trying to make them an example for the rest of the church, the rest of the people who have not yet come to faith in Christ. And he says, so we desire that each one of you, not just speaking to the beloved anymore, he's speaking to everybody that would hear this letter read in this church. And yes, there were people in the church that worshiped there regularly who'd not come to faith in Christ. Same thing of your church and my church. He said, we desire that each one of you would show the same diligence. Literally, the word diligence means haste or speed. I suppose he's basically saying, I'm saying to some of you, hurry up and come to faith in Christ. Use the same diligence to realize the full assurance of hope. The focus this morning is on God's promise, but the title of the message is God's promise, our hope. Let me ask you a question. Who do you know that you just, when they say, when they give you a promise, you just know you can take it to the bank? It may be somebody related to, it may be somebody you work with, it may be somebody else in your church, or just somebody at your school, somebody you're affiliated with. They just, you just know he or she is a man or woman that they keep their word. 
And can I say that is a, a dying character trait in our culture? In fact, I'm, a, I'm scared for the generation that's coming behind me. That the leaders of this generation, and I don't mean the religious leaders or spiritual leaders necessarily, I just mean the leaders that used to be heroes that we could look up to have kind of forgot what it means to just tell the truth. We had a politician a few years ago who said, you haven't heard my version of the truth. What does that mean? <laughs> does the truth have more than one version? Well, it does if you're, if you're trying to spin it and if you're trying to say, well, yeah, I, I realize that I lied there, but you need to hear my version of the truth. No, we need to be men and women of character, men and women of truth. And if you don't have anybody in your life, in fact, let me ask it this way. Are you that kind of person? That if I asked this question of your friends, they would point to you and say, you know what? When she says something, she means it. When he gives his word, you can take it to the bank. He's a man of his word. Can you be the, are you that kind of person? What we're looking at this morning is God is that kind of God. I read somewhere this week, you cannot break God's promises by leaning on them. If you don't get anything else from the message, here's what I want you to hear. God wants you to lean on His promises. God's made promises that we're looking at this morning in Scripture, but He's also made promises to you. And God expects you. In fact, He says, test me, try me in this. I've given you my word. So He says to these people, use the same diligence so that you'll realize the full assurance of faith. Their past was robbing them of the assurance of a relationship with Jesus Christ. Folks, their past was Judaism. Same thing can happen with us. It probably is not that we were raised in a Jewish household. But it may be something in our past is robbing us of the full confidence that Jesus Christ is our Lord and Savior. If you are a Christian, you know what Satan does? Satan comes and tries to tell you things like God doesn't love you anymore. You've crossed the line. You've messed up. How could God love someone like you? If you're not a Christian, he doesn't want you to think that. He wants you to think things like, well, you are a Christian. You're, you're okay. Why? Well, because you go to church or you've done this particular re religious activity. You've walked the aisle. You've been baptized. It, you can do all of those things and not know God. And so the writer of Hebrews is saying, we desire so earnestly that you have the full assurance, confident expectation in the hope of Jesus Christ. In fact, he uses another word that he's used before. He said, we don't want you to be sluggish. So he's already said, use diligence, be fast about it, use speed, haste. Don't be sluggish. Literally, don't be dull. <laughs> but instead, be imitators. Be careful who you follow, folks. Be imitators. The word means follower. In John chapter 13, Jesus says, I gave you an example that you also should do as I did. John 13, 15. God had left examples for them to follow. Now, these folks didn't have the New Testament yet. Who did they have to follow? They had the other Christians around them. They also had the characters, the people of the Old Testament. The people in the Old Testament that God said, I counted it unto them as righteousness because of their obedience. So let's bring that back to our day and time. Well, who are you following? And let me ask it another way. Who's following you? If somebody followed you, would they get closer to Christ or further away? Be careful who you follow. Second thing, the illustration of the promise. 
I love this. The writer of Hebrews gives them a glaring illustration that they would know better than you and I know. Why? Because they knew the Old Testament. To be a Jew, you had been to school. You had learned the Old Testament. You knew the stories of the Old Testament. They had been told repeatedly to you. And he holds up a great character from the Old Testament. The character of Abraham. And he talks about the promise that God had made to Abraham. In fact, Paul, writing in Romans, says in Romans 4.11, Abraham received the sign of the circumcision, a seal of the righteousness of the faith which he had while uncircumcised, so that he might be the father of all who believe without being circumcised, that the righteous might be credited, the righteousness might be credited to them. Who's he talking about? Abraham. God promised him, you're going to be a father. He said, in fact, go out and count the stars. Try this tonight. Go out and count the stars. That's what he says to Abraham. Now, keep in mind, Abraham was living in a time when there weren't any other lights. Have you ever looked at the stars when you were like on a mountaintop and there weren't any lights blocking some of the stars? Have you ever counted them? It's impossible. <laughs> You'll miss some of them. You'll get confused. There's countless numbers of stars. Then he said, go count the grains of sand. We could do this this afternoon. One o'clock, meet me. We're going to count the sand on the seashore. Anybody up for that? No, why? You can't count the sand. I mean, some of it's going to stick to the bottom of your feet. How are you going to count that? What's God saying? He's saying, Abraham, I'm making a promise to you. I promise to give you a land. I promise to give you an inheritance. You're not just going to have one child. You're going to have countless children. And he counts all the way down to us. We're receivers of the promise who were outside the circumcision. Now, what was the problem when he made that promise to Abraham? Abraham didn't have any children. Abraham was an old man. His wife was an old woman. Way past the age where you can have children. And God's making this promise saying, Abraham, you're going to have so many offspring. You're going to have a child and grandchildren and great-grandchildren all the way down throughout history. You're not even going to be able to count all of them. And Abraham's thinking, I don't even have one. And it was years after God made that promise before it finally came to fruition. In fact, they really struggled. Sarah, his wife, really struggled. She laughed out loud one time at just the notion. She even tried to circumvent God's purpose, God's providence in this and, and bring one of her handmaids so that Abraham could at least have a child by her. That wasn't God's plan. What was God's plan? To give him Isaac. Then what did he do? When Isaac was a teenager, God comes to Abraham and said, I want you to sacrifice your son Isaac. What do you think went through Abraham's mind? First of all, I love my son. But also, God, you made me a promise. How in the world can that promise be fulfilled if this son's no longer alive? What does he do? He packs up and goes on a journey. And his son helped carry the wood of the sacrifice. By this time, Isaac was not an infant walking or, or being carried along by his dad. He was a teenager. And he faithfully followed his father. And Abraham faithfully fathered, followed his father. But after the sacrifice was prepared and the knife was raised, God provides a substitute. We could preach several sermons just on that. But it says that Abraham was counted as righteous because of his obedience to God. 
God had made a promise. In fact, when he made the promise, this is in Genesis 15, if you want to write it down. He did what they had begun doing in the, New, in the Old Testament. And that is, if you made a promise, if two kings made a promise, they would take an animal and cut it in half. And the two kings would walk between the halves of the animal. Basically saying, we're swearing an oath today. We're making a covenant today. That if I break this covenant, what happened to this animal is going to happen to me. And God didn't have to do it. But God said to Abraham, go, get, go bring a three-year-old heifer and a three-year-old female goat and a three-year-old ram and a turtle dove and a young pigeon. And the animals, the heifer, the goat, the ram, he cut in two and laid the sides side by side. And he said that he passed through, through, the, through a fire, passed through that animal to basically say to, to Abraham in the same way that you do covenants I don't have to do this because I'm God but I am nailing it down this is an oath that I'm taking and Abraham patiently waited and obtained the promise let, let me read the passage because I don't think I've done that yet verse 13 for when God made the promise to Abraham since he could swear by no one greater he swore by himself saying I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply you and so having patiently waited he obtained the promise for men swear by one greater than themselves, and with them an oath is given. His confirmation is an end of every dispute. In the same way, God, desiring even more to show to the heirs of the promise the unchangeableness of his purpose, interposed with an oath so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have taken refuge would have strong encouragement to take hold of the hope set before us. So God... Wanting to take this oath. Who's God going to swear by? You know? Who do we swear by? There's people who say, I swear to God. Or I swear by heaven and earth. We don't have the right to swear by any of those things. But who's God? You, you have to swear by something greater than yourself, right? Who does God swear by? God says, I swear by myself. Because there is none greater. Now, in our day and age, what do we do? You go to a courtroom. You've got to swear to tell the truth. What do they do? Put your hand on the Bible. People, you know, I, I promise, I pink, anybody ever pinky sweared? <laughs> do they still do that? I cross my heart, hope to die. What's that all about? When I was a kid growing up in the youth group, when I was a teenager, there was a group of guys, about seven or eight of us, that hung out together. And we wanted to know we could trust each other, so we must have seen this on a television show or in the movie or something. If we ever said, cross my heart and hope to spit. I don't know where we got that from, but we got it from somewhere. If we ever said that, then you were telling the truth. In other words, you could lie up to that point. But we called it, I'm not lying, I'm just kidding. But if you ever said, cross my heart and hope to spit, man, that, that was, you could take that to the bank. Why do we even have to do that? Why can't people just know, hey, when he says something, when she says something, they mean it. It's the truth. That is what God has always done. And God didn't have to swear by something else. He didn't have to take an oath, but he did. And check out what the writer of Hebrews says. Because of the unchangeableness of his purpose. The, his purpose that could not change. He interposed with an oath. Because God is sovereign and God had a plan. And that plan started way before Abraham. But it included Abraham. And it was going to continue long after Abraham was gone. He interposed with an oath so that you and I could know God meant business. 
He interchanged by two unchangeable things, God's nature and God's word. He cannot lie. It's impossible for God to lie. Why is that? Is there anything that's impossible for God to do? It is impossible for God to do anything that is in contradiction to who he is. God can't die. God can't lie. Why? Because God is truth and God is eternal. So is there anything God can't do? Yeah, he can't die. He can't lie. There may be something else. When I was a kid, the question is, can God make a rock so big he can't move it? That'll make your head hurt. Think over that one at lunch. Well, God can't lie. And so when God made the oath, He didn't lie. He's kept that promise throughout generations. When you're in Abraham's shoes, you're wondering, how's He going to keep it? We look back and say, He has absolutely kept it. Look at the generation of Israel and now extended on to us, the Gentiles. You can't count the stars. You can't count the sand and you can't count the people who've placed their faith in the living God. God made a promise. And the writer of Hebrews says, because of that, we who have taken refuge can have strong encouragement. Folks, when every, put myself back 2,000 years, what the people were experiencing that got the letter of, of the, to the Hebrews, there was chaos going around them. They were being persecuted for the cause of Christ. And here's what the writer of Hebrews is saying. Listen, when all else is going wrong, you can flee to God for refuge. You can flee there for safety and be strongly encouraged. Take hold of the hope. And what we're going to hear later in the book of Hebrews is, the reason I can take hold of him is because he's already taken hold of me. It's not up to my strength and my grip. It's up to his grip. So the illustration of the promise, and then lastly, the security of the promise. And folks, this, it gets good, okay? Hopefully it's encouraged you this passage up to this point. But these last two verses, let me take a few moments just to unpack them. Verses 19 and 20. This hope we have is an anchor of the soul. A hope both sure and steadfast and one which enters within the veil. Where Jesus has entered as a forerunner for us, having become a high priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. This hope we have. Hope is confident expectation. But it's an anchor. This hope is an anchor. What's he saying to the readers here? He's saying, folks, when, when the sea is tossed around you, there's an anchor and it's the hope you have in God. Now, you and I don't spend a lot of time out on the sea. Some of you do. Some of you go deep sea fishing and all that. But the water and the sea was a critical, crucial part of their world. And there were times that storms would come up, whether it was the Mediterranean Sea or the Sea of Galilee or any other body of water that they were on. But the only hope they had was if the anchor would hold. The anchor's down there not being tossed by the waves and the wind up on the shore. It's, if it's a good anchor, it's gripped and the boat isn't going anywhere because it's anchored. So the, the writer here uses an illustration that you and I know. We know of anchors, all right? But I don't know that we know them quite like they did. But he said, this hope we have anchors our soul. To the readers of Hebrews in, in the first century, it anchors their soul even when there's persecution taken on around them. Even when people are saying, you need to come back. You, you've, you have forsaken the faith of your forefathers. You need to come back. He said, it, it ought to anchor your soul. Folks, for you and I in this generation, when the world seems to be in chaos, when it seems at times we live in an anti-Christian society, what anchors our soul? 
there's a hope we have in Jesus Christ that is, is, is an anchor stuck into the bedrock. That regardless of what the waves look like, He's not moving. He's an anchor. He's, in, he's sure and steadfast. The word sure means incapable of being moved. Secure, steadfast means stable. And He's entered within the veil. Let me just briefly, you and I, don't, we don't understand that. But for the Jews, that's where God dwelled. In the temple, when they come to worship, there was the outer courts, there were inner courts, there was even a holy place that you could go to. But there was a place behind the holy place that was separated by a veil called the Holy of Holies. They had it in the tabernacle in the wilderness. They had it in the temple in Jerusalem. It was a place that had the Ark of the Covenant the mercy seat is where the priest would go one time a year to sprinkle the blood of animals on the mercy seat so that God would forgive their sin. And so when he says Jesus has gone there, it's not a physical place anymore because what happened to the veil? This four inch thick woven tapestry that couldn't have been pulled apart by wild horses. What happened to it when Jesus Christ died on the cross? It was torn from top to bottom. It's almost like the finger of God just said, we don't need this anymore. There's nothing separating us now from the presence of God. The veil has been torn. And so Jesus has gone to the Holy of Holies. But Jesus has ascended to the Holy of Holies, the right hand of God, the Father. 1 John chapter 2 says, right now, my little children, 1 John 2, 1, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. In the Old Testament, the high priest once a year had to go and represent the people before God to beg forgiveness. Now Jesus is there. He's our advocate continually at the right hand of the Father. He's become our high, he's our forerunner. He's gone there before us. What did Jesus say in John 14? He said, In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you, for I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. And you know the way where I'm going. Remember what Thomas said? We don't know where you're going. How are we going to know how to get there? What did Jesus say? I'm the way. I'm the truth. I'm the life. No one comes to the Father. Except through me. What a comfort. Jesus is our forerunner. He's gone ahead before us, but there's a purpose to it. And one day he's coming back to claim us as his own and take us with him. So what are the ramifications of all that? Four things at our close. Four things from this passage. One, our hope is anchored in heaven. Our hope's not on a bedrock under the ocean somewhere. It's anchored in heaven where sin cannot touch it. Satan has no influence over it. It can't be removed. Secondly, Jesus has gone to prepare a place for us. Third, Jesus, our high priest, ministers perpetually and eternally. The writer of Hebrews says he's, he's our great high priest according to the order of Melchizedek. Just briefly, Melchizedek was a, both a king and a priest in the Old Testament. And his, king, his priestliness was eternal as Jesus' is. Next chapter, he unpacks a lot about Melchizedek. And the last thing is, it is sure. 
Folks, you and I can stand on the promises of God because it's impossible for God to lie. We can be anchored in heaven because there's nothing that can snatch us out of the Father's hand. So our hope is secure. God's made a promise. We can take it to the bank. Let's pray together. Bow your heads with me. Father, thank you that we know your word is true. And we know that our hope is secure. And God, like the readers who would have read this letter in Hebrews. Father, there's things shaking all around us. There's times it's scary. And Lord, in our own strength, we, we want to abandon hope. Yet, Lord, because of who you are, because of your promise in your word, we can cling without letting go. Because, God, you've got a hold of us. Thank you for that truth. May we live it this week. In Jesus' name, amen.